Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorges. Hello, everybody. This is the third in our series of Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episodes, in which we've been exploring some of the fantasy films that were influenced by George Lucas's Star Wars. While that film employed the language and iconography of science fiction, the underlying story is one rooted in classical fantasy. And the success of Star Wars, in addition to spurring a wave of sci-fi films, many of which we explored in our 10-part Get Me Another Star Wars series, also inspired a number of fantasy films, and we'll be discussing two of those today. Both of the films we're going to be looking at are original stories that incorporate elements of classical fantasy, fairy tales, and even biblical sources. First up is a dark high fantasy adventure from Ridley Scott, the director of Alien and Blade Runner. This is Legend. There is a balance to the universe. The struggle to maintain that balance is the stuff of legends. For there can be no good without evil, no love without hate. Life needs death. Innocence feeds lust. There can be no heaven without hell. No light without me. I am darkness. Ridley Scott first conceived of the idea for legend in the 1970s while filming his first feature, The Duelists, in France. Inspired by the classic fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, he imagined a story in which a hero rescues a beautiful princess from the Lord of Darkness and frees the world from a curse of eternal winter. He chose not to base his story on any one particular fairy tale, but rather craft an original one specifically designed for the medium of cinema. After reading the novels of William Hartsburg, Scott reached out to the author to help him craft the story, which they did while Scott was shooting Blade Runner. Legend tells the story of how the Lord of Darkness plans to kill the last remaining unicorns in order to usher in an era of endless night. In order to accomplish this, he sends his goblin servant Blix to track and kill the magical creatures. He's able to find them by following Jack and Lily, a pair of young lovers who have gone deep in the forest to see them. While one unicorn is gravely wounded, the agents of darkness pursue the other, while Jack and Lily each try to undo the damage and lift the curse of eternal winter. I hadn't watched this movie in a very long time. I had seen it before, but I hadn't watched it in a while. And my memories of it were kind of foggy. Like, it, 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 there's aspects of this movie that felt like a dream to me. Absolutely. And Watching this again for the, like for the first time in a number of years, I really liked it. I was surprised how much I liked it. Yeah, I too. Uh, almost exact same thing. I had seen it back in the day, uh, and I'd seen it since then, since the eighties. Um, I'd not seen it in a very long time, and I remembered thinking it was it was all right or whatever. I think I I appreciated this film much more now than I did back then. Then I liked it then, um, but I I think. All of the 
all of the reasons why this did not launch its own fantasy Star Wars trilogy are probably the reasons right. why I love this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, the film stars Tom Cruise as Jack of the Green, Mia Sarah as Lily, David Bennett, Alice Payton, Billy Barty, and as the Lord of Darkness, Tim Curry. Uh, and the movie had a rather difficult production and perhaps an even more difficult release. Director Ridley Scott originally wanted to shoot the film entirely on location and scouted areas such as Yosemite National Park, but ultimately the film was shot almost entirely at Pinewood Studios in England. And the forest set took up the entirety of the famed 007 stage there with trees that were like 60 feet in height. And I'll tell you, as part of the, the troubled production of the of this movie, on June 27th, 1984, with 10 days left of shooting on that set, the entire set burned oh, down. Man. The fire occurred during a lunch break, and so there were no injuries, but portions of the set had to be rebuilt, adding considerably to the film's budget. It's so interesting you say that he was looking to shoot this on location, because one of the things I loved is that it is all studio bound yeah in a way this is kind of you're entering the high watermark for practical sets yes what can be done at what scale i mean it almost feels like um the the modern era version of building the entire dracula castle set in the 30s yeah for that it the the scale and the look of it is just one of the one of the things that i absolutely love and how controlled it all is. Yeah, it, 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 it really does. It crafts a fantasy world because I think the only things they ended up shooting, like not in the studio where the scenes where, where Jack dives into the water, you know, was shot somewhere, you know, like, but other than that, because it's all, it's all stage bound, it really is creating this self-contained world that at, at, at a moment is real and, and unreal all at the same time. Yeah. And, and while obviously you will get movies that still do a lot on stage now, it just does feel different. Um, and, and I mean, and now this kind of movie would probably be using that giant, whatever, OLED backdrop. Yeah, the volume, yeah. the stagecraft, I believe, is which the formal is, which name. Which is amazing, it. but it's just a different look. It's a great tool. And and yeah, I think it's one of the things, and I was going to talk about this, but I think you, you bring up that I think there's something about fantasy films of the 80s. You had this period where you you could do so much with with uh you know with effects they had you know motion controlled cameras which were developed for Star Wars and 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 there was so much in terms of what could be done in terms of uh, production design but at the same time you were just on the precipice of digital techniques so everything has a kind of handmade quality to it and this movie especially feels like that absolutely and it is, I mean, from everything from, uh, you know, the, the massive prosthetics and makeup for Tim Curry. Oh, we'll get it. That is so, yeah. One of the best makeup of all time. I mean, it's an all time. Yeah. I think there's just, there's something about these eighties fantasy films, which now we hold in, in, in a sort of such, in our memory in such high regard. And some of the, the, the ones we've talked about on our previous bonus episodes, as well as some of we haven't like the never ending story. Uh, that's another one that kind of lives in my head. And it, it, they just have this tactile sense that a decade later, 
you know, if you made those movies a decade later, you wouldn't have because, you know, so much would be computer generated. And I'm not saying that's not a great tool because there's things you can do in the computer that you could never achieve in in real life. But there's something about the, the, the practical tactile sense. What I think, too, and I look, I'm this is just my opinion. And there's certainly actors who can work with green screen and things that are not physically there on set and do a very fine job. Um, but it's different when it's there. I just think that you do. I think even in the performances, it gives you something else to be fully on that stage with a giant wood set built. When you walk into a larger set where something cool has been built, you feel different. You just do. And that, that cannot help but come across. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. There's something there's something in the tactile quality. And and obviously, you know, we we've sort of crossed a Rubicon where, you know, digital technology and again, it's a great tool, but there's something about having also the practical because it just as you say, there's something about when you walk on a set that's built and it it there's something extraordinary about it. Uh like Ridley Scott's previous film, Blade Runner, there have been a number of cuts of legend over time. Uh, Ridley Scott's first cut of the movie was 125 minutes long. He then trimmed that down to 113. This version underwent some test screenings and was subsequently cut down to 95 minutes for the European release in late 1985, it, which was, by the way, handled by 20th Century Fox. U.S. distributor Universal Pictures delayed the American theatrical release till April of 1986, during which time the Jerry Goldsmith composed score was replaced by one from Tangerine Dream. The the 113 uh, minute version was eventually released on DVD and Blu-ray as the director's cut. I watched both versions for uh, for this show, and and I think, in my opinion, I think the director's cut is the better version. But that's not to say that that the theatrical cut doesn't have its merits. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the different cuts. Uh, I will say I like both the Jerry Goldsmith score and the Tangerine Dream score, but I think the Goldsmith one works better for the film. Not every movie gets a great score. This one gets two. I'm gonna go to bat for Tangerine Dream. I'll just I'm gonna tell you. Uh, I I don't blame. I love the Tangerine Dream score, but I when I heard that there's some areas where the Goldsmith score is really really. Um, I think actually works better in the context of the film. And I'll mention those as we go. Uh, it's a, this is just a very unusual movie. I mean, for a big budget, major studio would be blockbuster. Uh, it just, there's something about it that feels very ethereal and dreamlike. And, you know, like, this doesn't feel like a tentpole movie at all. It feels like a like an art, a very expensive art film. Yeah, I imagine the studio, if they thought, hey, let's get kind of a fantasy Star Wars franchise, let's hire the director of blockbuster hit Alien yeah. to do it. Unfortunately, they wound up hiring the director of Blade Runner. <laughs> Unfortunately for them. Unfortunately for them. Very fortunate fortunately for, for us. us. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think this... If you know that he was working on this uh, subsequent to Blade Runner, I think you can see that this is totally that period of Ridley Scott. Yeah, uh, this this pushes the dreaminess even further than than Blade Runner. And when we talked about Star Wars, we talked about how the the story is actually very simple. It you know it can be complex, but 
in in theme and rich rich all of that but it it doesn't have a bunch of bells and whistles it's not asking you to learn about 13 nations and blah 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 interacting with each other it's the anti-dune in that way right um legend strips things down even further where you have it, it really is so tight around these characters and it is very much good versus evil yeah. and a little bit of a quest but that dreamlike quality makes it such that it doesn't feel like a crawl. It's not like an episodic from here to here to here, and then we get the bad guy. This thing just feels like, I mean, overused, but it really is kind of a fever dream. But everything is so beautiful. And the story is so clear. You know, it's, it's, this isn't like Dario Argento dream logic. This is still, it's mainstream dream logic, which sounds weird to say. Right. But it's mainstream right. tentpole dream logic. So you never don't know where you're going or what the characters want or what's real. It's just, I think it's just more about the emotion than it is about the, uh, you know, the, uh, the business. Yeah, no, I think it's the emotion and the imagery. Because Ridley Scott has this ability to create these fully immersive, absolutely convincing worlds whether it's the future of alien or blade runner whether it's set in the past with movies like gladiator or kingdom of heaven or the last duel or in this case a realm of high fantasy he, he's just able to so fully realize these worlds that you you instantly believe in them i watch gladiator i don't i was not there for newsflash i was not there in ancient rome uh, my lifespan, while I, I am I am sometimes, I feel like an old man, my lifespan is not that long. But you watch Gladiator and you feel like, well, this there's an authenticity that, again, I'm not talking about the, the, the events of the story. I'm just talking about realizing the world. He has this ability. We should also mention the incredible work of production designer Ashton Gorton who from the deep interior forests to the to the, the 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 fortress of darkness this movie looks like no other absolutely uh the production design the cinematography uh we mentioned uh Tim Curry's makeup oh. but all of the special makeup oh, yeah. by special makeup by Rob Butcher yes Yes. Who many of our listeners will know that name. Yeah, he had already done the thing, he had already done the howling at this point and and this is kind of uh, you know uh, Rob Bottin at the at the peak of his powers, I think, in this movie. It's uh, you know not only darkness, but the goblins are incredible. Uh, the 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 dwarves are incredible. In a lot of ways, it feels like a classic Walt Disney animated film come to life, like you know Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, and this was before the days where every Disney animated film got a live action remake. Um, both Legend and those early Disney films draw heavily from Germanic and Northern European folklore. The cottage that Lily goes to early in the film that then gets swept over by winter mm -hmm. feels like it could be out of a classic Walt Disney animated film of the, the 30s or 40s. Uh, there's a shot in the director's cut of Lily whistling to a bird that looks like it's straight out of Snow White and just, you know, in live action. Um, and it really, they capture the weirdness and the darkness of these Germanic uh, folklore in, in, in ways that Disney hinted at, but didn't fully commit to. Um, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, you're spot on there. Uh, it, it does feel it's mythology through the lens of fairy tale. Yeah. And I think that's partly why the dreaminess of this movie works so well for me, 
Uh, and but you mentioned kind of that early stuff with the cottage and her talking with the bird. Yeah. The kind of Garden of Eden before the fall in this movie is so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and in many, many other people's hands could have been terrible. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to nail the tone of that just right with every aspect. Like if it's if the acting's in the wrong spot, if the direction's in the wrong spot, uh, even the music, it could just feel very, very cheesy which it does not hear at all. It it actually does spark kind of wonder and uh, like a feeling of ro- love. Yeah. This is such a romantic movie. Oh, from, absolutely. From soup to nuts. Yeah. I, 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 and I, I, that's another thing that I love about it. You don't get very many giant tentpole, lot of money spent on the movies that you could say the predominant emotion of the film is romantic. Yeah. Uh, and that's another re- it's it makes this so unique and unusual. Yeah. I also want to mention in terms of production design because it's going to come up sooner or later. There is more glitter in this motion picture than any <laughs> feature film I've ever seen. Everything. Everything from the actors to the the sets to the to the hooves of that of darkness because he's got these, you know, satyr-like hooves. Everything is covered with glitter, and it's incredible. Like, it gives it this incredible look. Yeah, and I know that um, most most kids who are kids right now don't watch a lot of 40-year-old movies, but this should be a sacred movie for any middle school girl. Yeah. It's got tons of glitter. It's got unicorns. Oh, God, it's... Fairies and love. It's... This is... uh, It's... You know, this should be up there with Princess Bride, I think, as far as a, uh, it kind of hits this, a similar target, similar, but obviously this is not a comedy. No, it's, it's playing it for, for, you know, for, for, for very serious. Uh, But yeah, no, it, and it definitely taps into the, the, the unicorn loving middle school girl that, that is, uh, that is in me. Um, It's interesting. The movie starts with this opening crawl. But that must have been put in at the insistence of Universal because it's not in the director's cut. The director's cut just and the, the opening call is really long. Like it's <laughs> it's like a yeah. it's really lengthy yes, it uh, and it's not there at all in the director's cut because you just get that information over the course of the movie. Um it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Unlike the Star Wars opening crawl, uh there is at least in the Tangerine Dream cut. There's no um, triumphant music. You're getting like some smooth jazz. Like this should be in a Tom Berenger's a detective movie, like where <laughs> where the femme fatale is there. I mean, this is. I think some... that's Ridley Scott's next movie. Yeah. Uh, someone will watch over me. Uh-huh. A movie that I do love. I will say. I, I have I... actually never seen that movie. It's one of the few Ridley Scott movies I've never seen. Oh my goodness, Chris! I'll find a way to have us cover it. I, I really love it, and I didn't realize how much until I I I. I sometimes listen to our our cuts as we do them, and I'm like, why do I keep referencing someone to watch over me <laughs> so much? It's in my brain. The movie uh, Tom Cruise plays Jack of the Green, a, a young man of the woods, and and I think Cruise is really interesting in this movie. Um, I like Tom Cruise. There's some people who are, are are less enamored of him. I think I think he's really interesting because you have a 
post-risky business Tom Cruise. So he is he is a movie star at this point, but a pre-Top Gun. So he hasn't developed the um the the Top Gun Tom Cruise persona that would come to kind of dominate his performances from the late 80s and early 90s, movies like Cocktail and Days of Thunder and even A Few Good Men, where you, you, there's sort of variations on, on a theme. Here, it's, it's a Tom Cruise who is very earnest, and I mean that in a good way because it works for the film. He's fully committed to this world. There's no modern sense of irony about Tom Cruise in this movie. Absolutely. And another thing that I love about him in this, uh, in Legend, is that there's also none of that swagger that you get in Top Gun and beyond. And I don't mind the swagger in those those films. I'm not saying that. No, it works great but, for those characters. Yeah. But here, he, as you said, Ernest, another one, I he is kind of an innocent hero. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is not this is not the swashbuckling hero of of even Krull or the tarnished heroes of Excalibur. Right. Um, he is uh, a pure soul. Yeah. It, it, the closest thing I could put it to is if uh, the hobbits were bigger and could fight. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like. He's he's not an Aragorn. He is no, because he's not world weary. You know, Aragorn's a guy who's been around and seen it all. You know, and 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 Jack is not. Um, uh, the same is also true of Mia Sarah, who I'll I'll just say I think is looking is basically looking as beautiful in this movie as anyone ever has on film. My goodness, um, I mean, in the early scenes, she she has got an innocent beauty. There's later when she gets the. Uh, the sort of the dark lily costume that she's that she's changes into midway through the movie, uh, which for my money is basically the best costume uh, in movie history. It's like it's just the best thing ever. Um, yeah. And the hair slicked back. It's um, oh. it's very classic, kind of the the dark side of you coming out. And they, you know, in this in this instance, it's because of uh, under the influence of someone else. And it's it's another point though where. That whole sequence, uh, it just feels again uh, very dreamlike. Oh, the the scene where the dress dances to the her dance, yeah, yeah. I, I will get to that in a minute, but it's so it's so good. Um, I do want to talk about early in the film uh, when Jack uh, takes Lily to see the unicorns, and I think it's it, that. That whole sequence is extraordinarily beautiful. You have you have unicorns that came right in from Blade Runner and rolled right into Legend. Uh, you know there was clearly a unicorn thing going on at the time. I also think it's interesting. I swear that when the unicorns first appear, we hear the singing of whales. Mm. Like that is used like as as sort of the. And I wonder at the time. If in 1985, the sound of whales wasn't as commonly known, like now I can identify it instantly as, oh, those are whales. Um, but, you know, I think Star Trek IV The Voyage Home might have had something to do with whale song being more widely recognized. Um, but it's the whole sequence is so beautiful. And there's that shot of her reaching up to the unicorn that I just feel is iconic, instantly iconic. Absolutely. The other thing that I love about this, just story wise, is the her innocence allows her to get that close to the unicorns. The unicorns know that she yeah. is not a threat. But the evil side has weaponized her innocence because they are waiting in the wings 
to attack the unicorn and that they are therefore using her innocence and openness to be able to do evil and holy shit chris if that doesn't resonate right now in this world oh my god you're using uh, you're using the free and open society values against the free and open society man i know that's not intended here but I, uh, it got me a little bit. You know what? That's the thing about great films is they resonate in ways that, that they couldn't have seen. And, and this movie resonates in a way that in 1985, you know, that, that might not have been foreseeable. I also want to mention in the original script, it's much darker. Um, Lily is, is scratched by one of the unicorns after it's shot by the goblin. And she starts to turn into a beast herself that darkness then seduces. Uh, it's, it's, even more uh, dreamlike and strange in the original script. I do want to mention that this that sequence of the the introduction of the unicorns is one of the areas where I think the director's cut is much better, is a much more superior version of the film than the theatrical cut because it allows a couple of small but significant character moments for Jack and Lily. Um, for example. In the moment just before Lily approaches the unicorns, in the theatrical cut, she rushes forward uh, and Jack warns her not to, as if she simply didn't hear him. But in the director's cut, she hears him. She turns back and she gives Jack this little smile that is at once mischievous and seductive and perhaps even a little wicked, and as if she knows that she shouldn't approach the creatures, but she does anyway. And it's a great little moment that gives depth and meaning to her later line where she says, and she's later in the cottage and she sees the winter and she says, I'll make it right. Because there's a difference between doing something that you had no idea was wrong and something you knew deep down might not be the right thing to do. And, and I think that the director's cut just adds some depth and, and, and shading to that. It's interesting you bring that up because I only watch the theatrical. Right. And that that whole sequence has a very much the, you know, e- eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Good and Evil Definitely. fall uh, element to it. But I will say watching the theatrical and not having that moment where she made more of the conscious, conscious decision to go on even after being warned. Afterward, Jack is extremely judgy. I'll just put it that way. Right. Uh, and in the theatrical, it makes one... It reflects on his character far differently than if he had warned her, she turned back and then went forward anyway, uh, where maybe it would be a, the, the, the size of his reaction might be a little more warranted than it feels in the right. theatrical. Yeah, no, I think so. And it, it's uh, the theatrical cut also cuts Lily singing which is given significant emphasis on the director's cut. There's, I think these were a casualty of the elimination of the Jerry Goldsmith score, uh, in which her songs were sort of interwoven into, uh, into the musical score itself. I would say that I love the two songs that were added along with the Tangerine Dream score. Is Your Love Strong Enough by Brian Ferry, and I especially love Loved by the Sun by Tangerine Dream and John Anderson of Yes. Those songs are incredible. Uh, and, and, and that is something you do lose in the director's cut that is fantastic in the theatrical cut. Yeah, but um, I, I will say, I do have a note, Chris. And I, I knew there was a director's cut, and I was, but in the middle of the movie, I'm not, I wasn't thinking about that. No, no. But it's funny when you mention all the stuff that's got cut. I have a note that literally says, this is a movie that feels like some steps are missing. 
Yeah. Like when they cut the unicorn horn off and then it's just instantly in an icy hell. The bad goblins are going to town to look for the innocents. Uh, it, it feels like they're every now and again, and not massive amounts. It doesn't throw you, the theatrical doesn't throw you out of the movie. No. But for a movie that is so elegant, when those missing pieces occur, uh, I will say you do feel it because it's not as seamless of a ride as in the other portions. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Jack eventually allies himself with an elf named Honeythorn Gump. Uh, as well as two dwarves who together they journey to the Fortress of Darkness to try and, uh, and and undo what has happened. And Lily separately commits to trying to undo what happens. And obviously it's all going to come together at, at Darkness's Fortress. I think I gotta mention David Bennett plays Honeythorn Gump. And uh, he is, he is fantastic. Uh, you know, as this capricious and mercurial elf that in a way that elves are not, we're used to now the sort of Tolkien-esque elves of being these sort of noble, you know, kind of almost, they're almost the, the Vulcans of fantasy world. Whereas here, you know, it's this, it's, he's more, you don't always know where he's, he, he's coming from. He's got this kind of uh, sort of trickster side to him. And I think uh, the, the actor David Bennett plays that incredibly well. Yeah, there, there's a Pan-like quality to his elf. Yes. Absolutely. I would even say maybe just a, a tiny bit of Peter Pan, uh, <laughs> who's named after Pan. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And he's got a Tinkerbell as well, because it's funny, both of the movies today have Tinkerbell-esque characters. Yes. Yes. Uh, some are more Tinkerbell than others. This one's a little different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she, yeah. No, she, uh, she, gets she, she likes Jack. That's oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it's a. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's it's interesting. Yeah, she 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 basically throws herself at Jack and you know and says, "Hey, listen, if you want to." At one point, they get captured in in Darkness's fortress, and she's like, "If you want to get out, you got to give me a kiss." You know, she's she, and you know he kind of gives her a sort of half hearted kiss, and and uh, and she's like, "Really? You know, that's the the best you can do." And he's like, "Well, you know, I love somebody else." Um, it's really interesting. It's it's there's a. There's just a, even that has a darkness to it in her, uh, in, in her tone. Mm -hmm. uh, on the way to the fortress, they have to cross this putrid swamp, um, which I swear to God, I saw the statue of Pazuzu from the exorcist <laughs> in the, like sort of in the, in the swamp itself. And we get, uh, that's where they meet Meg Mucklebones, a swamp hag. That's another incredible creature design, uh, played by Robert Picardo, who was in the howling, um, and it's a really, really good scene, uh, made a little bit better in the director's cut because there's a scene, there's a bit in the director's cut where uh, Jack loses his sword. Like in the in the the theatrical cut, he defeats Meg, and it's a little too easy. In the th in the director's cut, he loses his sword, and there's a moment of genuine panic. So that when he actually succeeds in defeating her, it's um, you know it it, it comes in a, it's a little harder to do. Oh, that's interesting, and um, I also want to. Uh talk about when they're all in the pit oh yes the 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 sequences in the pit are terrific yeah i i was just so enamored again uh this is another little point of reference of they thought this was going to go mainstream and i'm like you were a few decades too early uh s&m leatherface in the pit coming after them <laughs> <laughs> i yes. just saw that and I, you could kind of say, well, Rob, you, you were going to have Road Warrior and you had things that were in that vein. Right. But there's just something 
Road Warrior didn't have the tone and feel that this movie does, though. There's there really is this Euro art house quality so that when S&M Leatherface is yeah. coming, storing after you in a pit where you're all trapped, it just it feels it feels a little more dangerous. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. Well, I, I think this whole movie has a sensibility of German expressionist silent films. Like there's something, you know, when we, especially when we get to the Fortress of Darkness, there's just, there's weird imagery, like things that you don't expect to move, move. Like, oh, you think it's a statue, but it's really like, you know, a, a person in a costume. And it's really extraordinary. Uh, Lily finds herself in uh, darkness's uh, lair. And, and it's this massive space where she's tempted by jewels and food. And it culminates in a scene we, we, we mentioned earlier, this incredible scene where the dress literally dances itself onto her. And it is one of the most incredible visual moments of this film. Uh, and, and it's, it's fantastic. And, and the dress it's got this plunging neckline and this insanely high collar. It is peak 1980s, and it is absolutely amazing. For sure. And with that sequence, as you talk about it, I think it's a perfect illustration uh, of two things you just talked about. You had said that it, it, there's a lot of silent movie feel in, in the look, but obviously updated. There is the old chestnut that you should be able to turn the sound off of a film right and know what's going on now uh, look i i i think in some ways that's uh, some ways that's true in some ways it's not this is a film you absolutely could turn the sound off and you will know what's going on and i think that's in that sequence of her being tempted is one that showcases that to great effect and another part of this that i wanted to bring up is You'd said it was probably, you know, one of, if not the most visually kind of striking sequence in the film. And I just want to dive into that for one moment. This is something that was supposed to be a big tentpole. Is he spending his time on fights? No. No. He almost he almost never lingers on the the quote unquote exciting fight stuff. Yes. Absolutely. All of the visual all of the visuals and the the love and the care are given to these very unusual moments. And that's another reason this just, it sets it apart, again, for me in a good way. Uh, back then, you know, maybe people were wondering, why isn't he swinging a sword around and yeah. fighting all the goblin guys? Um, and I just, I love that they do other stuff here. Yeah. And it's it, and it's interesting stuff. Absolutely. I, I also want to mention that the, the dance with the dress is one of the instances where the Goldsmith score works much better than the Tangerine Dream score. Again, I love the Tangerine Dream score, but Goldsmith basically composed a full waltz uh, for that scene. Mm. And it's it's incredible. So what we're going to play at first is the Tangerine Dream score from the, the, the dress waltz scene. And now we're going to hear 
the Jerry Goldsmith scene from the dress waltz. And that's something where you can really hear the difference between the two. Again, I love the Tangerine Dream score. Uh, I think it's great. But I all I think that the Goldsmith score is just it's so it's so more substantive for this particular film. Rob, I there's someone in this movie we haven't talked about yet, and I think we need to do so now. Oh yes. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about Tim Curry as darkness. Because if there's one image that people think about, even if they haven't seen this film, they have seen the image of Tim Curry as darkness. Yes, and his performance in this movie... Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, we're used to, in our era, having complex villains and uh, even the Marvel movies. Oh, we want, we want yeah. Thanos to sound reasonable about killing half of the, the unit, right. you know, the universe. Killmonger, you know, uh, yeah. is one of the, the yeah. ones, but in a fairy tale dreamlike movie from the eighties to essentially have the devil yeah. have real emotions. He actually loves Lily. Yes. At least that's how it's played. Yes, absolutely. And now, there are other there are ulterior motives that it'll help him with his taking over the world. But in those scenes with her in the seduction scene and trying to seduce her to the dark side and all of that, he is both trying to trick her into it. But he is not just mad when it doesn't work because of what it means for his overall plot. Right. He he cares. And it's and that level of emotion is just so wonderful. Yeah. And it adds it adds complexity to a fairy tale, which is mind boggling to me. Yeah, and and what one of the things I think is so extraordinary, and this is where uh, Rob Bottin's makeup. Um, a lot of times when you have that kind of big, um, you know, prosthetic makeup, it encases the actor where it's impossible for them to really, uh, you know, express. But this makeup job gives Tim Curry the ability to express emotion on a on a on a deep and subtle level and and it is the effect is incredible like it it's a Tim Curry performance you can hear it in the in the the, the some of the way he he says lines it's like oh I, I I can I can sense that it is not Tim Curry encased in this thing and just you know it's it's he can act that the makeup is both transformative and yet expressive, and it it is it, it allows for a fantastic range of emotions. As you say, once Lily, uh, you know, is captured, he is enchanted by her, and I can't blame him. Um, you know, the way he, it's it's all incredible. Yeah, the one thing I will mention, and I this isn't a ne necessarily a negative. but it is indicative of this mm. movie because this movie, I think, is much more interested in feeling and visuals. Uh, so the pacing reflects that. So this is an instance that's uh, a perfect illustration of it. Lily meets Darkness. He tries to seduce her. She refuses. He gets mad. 
she realized that's not going to end well for her. And then she tricks him and it's all in a single giant scene sequence. Other movies would have parsed that out where yes, somehow the first point of contact to seduce her might've been earlier. And then you have like a progression in a fairy tale. You don't do that though. (laughs) It all happens in a scene. You, you bite the apple, you, you fall asleep, you know, it, it, it just goes. And so I, you know, some people, uh, some people might see that as a negative. I just see it as a difference, but it is a notable thing that, and, and definitely separates it from Star Wars in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, granted, it, you know, at times Obi-Wan will just tell you some stuff right. so you can move on, but it, it still is meted out and it feels as if things have been set up and it's, it's progressing. This movie is just kind of, you know, going through and focusing on, on what really matters, which is you know, the feeling and the, and the visuals. And I also want to add that in the, in the director's cut, in, in the, I should say, in the theatrical cut, you get a scene with darkness early where he's giving Blix his instructions at the very beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's weird because like the coloring is different. It's, I, it's just a strange moment. But in the director's cut, that scene, you don't see darkness at the beginning. It's it's Blix is talking to an unseen figure. You get his his finger and the, the fingernail. Um, but it, it's you don't get the full reveal of darkness until he steps through the mirror in the director's cut. And it's way more effective than having sort of this, uh, the, the theatrical cut shots at the very beginning, which undercuts some of the mystery of who is behind all this. And just for... Uh listeners who haven't seen a uh, legend that step through the mirror reveal that you'd be talking about as being the first instance of seeing darkness in full in the director's cut. That is the seduction scene with Lily when he's seducing her to the dark side. Yeah. Uh, as Jack and company make their way through the fortress and eventually find darkness as he's about to commence a ritual sacrifice of the final remaining unicorn. They learn that darkness cannot fully triumph, with sunshine left in the world. He actually says, sunshine is my destroyer. And I just, I actually said out loud, dude, don't say that out loud. <laughs> like you're giving the game away. Um, and, and the movie, it, 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 they rig a series of mirrors, which allow them to shine sunlight from up above down into the depths of darkness's fortress. Uh, this movie, like the Dark Crystal, deals with the concept of balance between light and dark and between good and evil and that both are necessary. And while darkness must be prevented from dominating the world, he cannot and perhaps should not be destroyed entirely. Um, once Jack has defeated him, darkness gives this speech to, ask, you know, to that effect, asking what is light without dark. What is light without dark? What are you without me? (laughs) I am a part of you all. You can never defeat me. We are brothers. Eternal. 
The director's cut also has a slightly more ambiguous ending for Jack and Lily, where he awakens her from the spell, and he first tries to convince her that it's all a dream. And then they part in the forest and go separate directions, but promise to see each other again. In the theatrical cut, you have a more traditional ending where they go off together with the added additional shot of darkness laughing added in. Um, and it's 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 interesting. The, the, the theatrical cut has a more sort of definitive ending, but you have that bit with darkness, whereas the, the director's cut, that bit with darkness is not there, but it's more ambiguous. Um, and that is um, a, a key difference because without it, in the theatrical cut, this feels, again, very fairy tale-like with the characterization in that unlike star wars where Mm. characters grow and change i would argue our characters in legend in the theatrical they kind of begin and end in the same place yeah uh and really there's just troubles in the middle it doesn't have the uh you know the normal hollywood oh you have to do these character beats and have you know xyz which normally again can, can be very well done too um but it's interesting in that uh as you say in the director's cut which I did not watch for this, but just hearing you talk about it, that that actually shows growth and change, but perhaps not in the direction our characters would have wanted. Yeah, it's interesting, um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's it's just it, it's a fascinating film. Uh, it, it's uh, I can tell you, Rob, between you and me, if in this era of legacy sequels. Uh, I, I can tell you, if there was a legacy sequel to Legend, and and the you know the 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 open writing assignment came my way, I I have my pitch for the legacy sequel to Legend. Okay, I would create a character who is the personification of light, who is filled with benevolence, but at least until they try to cover the world in eternal daylight which leads our main characters to have to turn to find and turn to darkness in order to set the world back into balance. That's ah, my, my legend sequel pitch. I love it. And uh, I'm going to give you your director. Please. Uh, assuming Ridley Scott's uh, dance card is full. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, I think. That would be amazing. Uh, that, he, I, uh, again, the, the visuals. Neon Demon Refn doing le- a legend sequel. Oh, and ideally, you have Ridley Scott as a producer the way he was with the Blade Runner yeah. sequel. Uh, unfortunately, Legend was a commercial disappointment at the box office. Like uh, Blade Runner, it didn't immediately connect with audiences. And I, I kind of understand why. It's strange. It's dark. It's times. It's remote and cold. So I get why moviegoers who were seeking a rousing fantasy adventure didn't immediately take to it. But it's a fascinating movie with depth that presents this incredible, visually unique world. And in in many ways, it's like Blade Runner in that regard. And uh, like that film, it has become a cult classic. But if it's rousing fantasy adventure that you seek, look no further. Look no further than our second film today, produced by George Lucas and directed by Ron Howard. This is Willow. From the creator of Star Wars. From the director of Cocoon. A world is awakening. Why, with the strength of my great army, can you not find one little child? It's a dangerous world. That's why we need your help. Your journey has just begun. Willow. Oh! <laughs> 
heroes come in all sizes. But adventure doesn't come any bigger than this. The story that would eventually become Willow was first conceived of by George Lucas in the early 70s, around the time he was writing the original Star Wars, under the title Munchkins. And I can tell you, Rob, I'm glad they did not go with the title Munchkins uh, for this movie. That that wouldn't have, I just don't think that would have played well. Um, but it was Lucas's intention to create an original fantasy film that would employ classic fairy tale uh, tropes in a way that he had done you know, with, with Star Wars and, and, and sort of science fiction adventure. Uh, he began work in earnest on the film in the early 80s as production on the Star Wars trilogy was winding down, and it was during the shooting of Return of the Jedi that he first approached actor Warwick Davis, who had played Wicket the Ewok in that film, about playing the lead role. Lucas turned to Ron Howard, who had starred in his 1973 film American Graffiti and had since built a career as a director to helm the film, and they in turn turned to Bob Dolman to write the screenplay from Lucas's story. Willow revolves around Willow Ufgood, a farmer and one of the Nelwyn people, who aspires to be a great sorcerer. He comes across a baby, Elora Dannon, who Willow will later come to learn is destined to bring about the downfall of the evil queen Bavmorda. Willow is then given the task of bringing Elora Dannon back to her own people, the Daikini, where she'll be safe. Along the way, he will encounter various allies and enemies and discover if he is a sorcerer after all. Willow was released on May 20th, 1988, and there were very high expectations for this film. Lucasfilm had really sought to match the commercial success of the Star Wars trilogy, which was now five years in the rear view. It opened the same Memorial Day weekend window as the original Star Wars trilogy, and the posters all emphasized from the creator of Star Wars and carried the tagline, The Next Great Adventure. And the film did fairly well at the box office. It did 57 million domestic, 137 million worldwide. We don't usually talk about sort of numbers, but I want to mention them because it was a success. The only way it wasn't considered a success in terms of box office was if you compare it to Star Wars. If you're looking for it to do Star Wars numbers, it, it didn't, which is why it took until 2022 for a sequel to materialize. Willow stars Warwick Davis. Val Kilmer, Joanne Wally, Jean Marsh, Patricia Hayes, Pat Roach, Gavin O'Herlihy, Kevin Pollack, and Rick Overton. Um, I also want to mention that both movies today feature Billy Barty, and he's much less annoying in either of these movies than he was as Gwildor in Masters of the Universe. <laughs> uh, and Jean Marsh, who plays Bavmorda, played a very similar role of Mombi a few years earlier in a movie called Return to Oz. And by the way, Rob, she was also married to the third Dr. John Pertwee between Ooh. 1955 and 1960. Uh, and we start with a text introduction, while, which while it doesn't crawl up the screen, it has a very Star Wars tone. It is a time of dread, is a very similar statement to it is a period of civil war. And, and this, this movie takes place in this classical high fantasy world that is not unlike J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. And sometimes it feels a little like Middle Earth with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah, or Middle Earth for, uh, for kids, really. Uh, like, you know, but the whole family. It, yeah. It's not a children's movie, per se. But it's No, it's not a children's movie, but it's definitely a family movie. Yeah. When you say the, the serial numbers filed off, I, I would say that watching this i very much got the feel like 
Lucas's Star Wars of, oh, there's a bunch of influences. So Lord of the Rings is definitely one. Yeah. Um, I mean, you get some, you get some, Mo- the story of Moses, you get some Gulliver's travels. Oh, sure. Uh, you get your Tinkerbell. Uh, among- so, yeah, I was going to say some of the Disney early animated yeah. films, Queen Bavmorta feels like the evil queen from Snow White yeah. uh, come to life. Unlike Star Wars, though, um, and again, this isn't a criticism of Willow, it you feel them as touch points. You feel them as references. For instance, I never watch the trench battle in Star Wars and go, oh, yeah, World War II fighter footage, even though that's what he right. was. It was a touch point and he was basing things on it. Well, I never watch it and go, oh, yeah, Flash Gordon, uh, even though when you know and you look, you go, oh, yeah, I, I can see where elements did get combined. But in Star Wars, they combine and it feels just wholly different. Yeah. Here, it feels like bits and pieces of other things. Uh, and I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's just a different it's just a different combination. Well, I think part of it is because you were taking Star Wars takes a bunch of different influences, including obviously like adventure sci-fi adventure serials like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, but also things ranging from Japanese samurai films, as you mentioned, World War II. Obviously, there's a strong Western influence in Star Wars. And and because it's taking those and then putting them, wrapping them in the in the iconography of science fiction. It's it's making things different. Whereas here, you're taking a number of different fantasy sources, but staying in the realm of kind of classical fantasy, it's much easier to identify some of those sources as you come along. Yeah. And we'll, we'll do that as yeah. we talk about the film. Uh, I think both Legend and Willow, to, to be honest, are kind of pastiches of earlier fantasy stories. You, you, can, you can see the influence in both. Um, but but through very different directorial lenses between Ridley Scott and Ron Howard. It's to me, it's not unlike how Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter were inspired by many of the same sci-fi and Western mm-hmm. movies of the mid-20th century, but process those stories to through two very different prisms. Yeah. Another uh another part of the pastiche in this movie that is taking not from a fantasy element. But I, I found very interesting, and it with the music and everything, uh, and we'll talk about these as they come up. I think it's undeniable that the action set pieces in Willow are not designed to be like Star Wars action set pieces. They are designed to be Indiana Jones set pieces. I had the same thought. I had the same thought when 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 there's the scene where it's the cart chase. Yeah. And I said it's the medieval fantasy version of the truck chase from Raiders of the Lost Absolutely. Ark. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it's interesting because in in fantasy, in, you know, in kind of classical fantasy, there is this thing where stories get taken and repurposed. Um, what happens is oftentimes we forget the original story. So it's like even Tolkien, who is unquestionably one of the most influential storytellers of the last century, basically did the same thing. He took the folklore and mythology of Northern Europe, particularly Germanic, Norse, and Celtic myth, processed them through his, the lens of his own imagination and experience, and produced something new. You know, Tolkien's work incorporates elements of stories such as the Song of the Nibelungs, the Volsunga Saga, and of course, Beowulf. And, and now you have people who grew up reading Tolkien, but don't necessarily aren't familiar with the stories that Tolkien was drawing from. Uh, so it's, it's, I think, a common thing in fantasy fiction. Um, 
you know, in, in both Willow and Lord of the Rings, you have members of a diminutive people who are tasked with bringing something special on a long and difficult journey. In Lord of the Rings, it's the Ring of Power, which symbolizes darkness and evil, while here it's a baby who symbolizes hope and good. I, uh, and I know we, we haven't gotten into the story proper yet, but just in general, talking about the beginning of Willow, I like Willow. I like the whole movie. I think I love that first act the best. Yeah. It's, 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 it's funny to me. I wanted, I I love being introduced to Willow's world and his town, getting the, the politics of what's going on there and Willow's desire to be able to learn and become a real sorcerer. But he starts and he's doing his mat like literal yes. magic tricks in the sense that we yeah. think of them where that it's hocus pocus uh you can book willow at the magic castle rob absolutely and it's um i love that world so yeah. much I, when we get into the rest of the film it's fun and it's rollicking and and you have fun but it it's interesting that that opening and it, it feels different from hobbiton to me or the Shire. Yeah. Um, it's, it doesn't feel the same, even though you would look and go, it's, you know, a similar impulse. Um, I, I think because the Shire really is almost so, so idyllic. Yeah. Whereas Willow's world feels much more real. Yeah. In that, like, he wants to do something. He's being prevented because of his status. Yeah. In that, in that world. And you're like, oh, these are not, I mean, they're not, evil evil people or anything no it's just the the politics of everyday life yeah exactly um i should mention willow is a farmer it's i i find it interesting that unlike star wars and then like many of these types of stories willow is not a callow youth you know he's a family man he's a husband and a father who doesn't really want to go on adventure but he does so anyway because he finds this baby uh alora dannon who is basically the baby of prophecy that will bring down the evil queen, Babmorda. And, and what happens in a very biblical scene at the beginning of the movie, uh, Babmorda has, has learned of this prophecy and imprisons all the pregnant women to observe their birth to see if, if, it, if it's the child who is going to be born with a special birthmark. Um, and a midwife sneaks out the, the child of the, sneaks the child out of the castle and, and sets her along the river and they send out the, the soldiers to find him. It's all very much like the, the book of Exodus with Pharaoh ordering the, the newborn Hebrew children to be killed and the baby Moses, Moses set upon the Nile where she's eventually found. It, it's, it, it's, it's a really interesting, it, it's really interesting. It's really well done. And when Willow finds the child, I, I think it's, it's all very effective and he doesn't really want to do this. It's like, oh, I, I don't really want to, I, I, I want to take care of my, my farm and I want to study to be a sorcerer. I love that he's uh, plowing the farm with a pig. I think that's a, just a great bit rather than horses. Oh, like yeah. that's a nice bit. Um, and then we get the, the scene at the, at the Nelwyn Ren Fair where uh, Willow bungles his disappearing pig trick, um, which will come back later. It is, uh, you, you think it's going to be, uh, you think it's going to be Chekhov's magical acorn, but at the end, it's really Chekhov's disappearing pig trick that will uh, that will save the day. Absolutely. Um, so then, Willow wants to be a sorcerer, and there's that great scene where uh, he, he goes to the the sorcerer. You know, like there's a bunch of candidates to to be the uh, the the apprentice sorcerer, and he asks a question of each of them, and they all get it wrong. And Willow knew what the right answer was. He was just afraid to kind of 
go put himself out on a limb and answer correctly. Uh, it's a really interesting bit. Yeah, and uh, the riddle I believe that is asked is where does the uh, is it the true power in what, what finger? finger? And and the the sorcerer holds up his own hand as example, and uh, right. they're picking like a pinky or a thumb. Oh, the thumb and the forefinger. Yeah, when in reality the answer was it's in your own finger. And that's the, the and and Willow later has a private conversation with the High Alwyn is the is the uh, is the sorcerer and he you know he says it's here like you knew it but you didn't you didn't have the courage to kind of like put your your answer out there I I I, I have been in this situation in my life yeah where I'm like I know the answer but I just didn't have the courage to say it and this is very much a more in the Star Wars model yeah where. Willow, I, I talked in Legend, it felt very fairy tale like and where the, the characters kind of start and end the same, at least in the theatrical. In this movie, this is 100% a hero's journey. Yeah. Willow is very changed and different at the end of this movie. There's a real character arc that, I, I, you know, it's very satisfying. Um, and you get, you get the beats paced out super nicely throughout the movie. And it, it's funny, Lucas, I think, does have this little magic trick or, you know, when in a lot of these things where on paper you hear about the, you know, you look at the force or here, you know, we're describing the, where does the, <laughs> where's the magic? Finger does the, yeah. Where's the magic? And you go, okay, that's, you know, it could, again, it could sound very cheesy, but, uh, and I, I take this also as a uh, big credit to Ron Howard, the direction in this and Willow, it does not come across that way at all. No, it, it is. It, it comes across very much as creating extra depth in the character and story in a way that's very nice for what can otherwise be a pretty straightforward story, although not not un, uncomplex because you do everyone uh, at some point wants to throw away this baby. Yeah. Who they yeah. need to actually save the world because this is uh, much like Excalibur not this is not a world of pure goodness there are a lot yeah. of self-serving people who are not there to serve they're not there to help the greater good and they just don't want to get hassled uh, uh and that that will go very much when we meet mad martigan which is a yes a little a before little we get to to that i want to clarify a couple of terms because um basically in the world of willow you have humans of different sizes tall people are the daikini uh little people are the nelwyn um, and then you have like pocket sized people who are mm -hmm. called the brownies, uh, a name that comes from Scottish folklore. So I wanted to wanted to clarify our terms before we proceed forward. Um, Willow and a group of Nelwyn are tasked with setting out to return the baby to the Daikini. And they they basically are told, hey, listen, go out into the world, find the first Daikini that you can find and pawn this baby off on. They're not trying to bring him somewhere safe. They're just trying to get rid of him in a way that their conscience is clear. Um, and they eventually find themselves at a crossroads where they encounter Mad Mardigan, the self-proclaimed world's greatest swordsman, locked in a hanging cage and left to die. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Mard Mardigan because it is Val Kilmer arguably in his prime. Oh, for sure. This is a Han Solo character 
pushed to the nth degree, though. I mean, yep. much, much further than they actually ever took yes. on Solo in Star Wars. Yeah, he is a rogue. You, 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 you're not sure if you can trust him. And truthfully, I'm not sure you can trust him, yeah. at least at the outset. Uh, but when he does get a sword in his hand, he is every bit as good as he claims. Yes, and you get uh, in that that scene where you meet him, uh, where um, you know he's trying to get Willow to get him stuff and to get him out of the cage to unlock the cage, and then the army is coming by, and it of course one of the the men in the army knows Mad Mardigan, and they're talking, and you think he's going to release him, but no, no. <laughs> That character who leads, I have to add, that character who leads the army is played by an actor named Gavin O'Hurlihy, who played Chuck Cunningham, the older brother of Richie Cunningham on the early seasons of Happy Days, who famously disappeared from the series. Like, by the time you get to the end of the series, that character was basically erased from Happy Days continuity. But it was played by Gavin O'Hurlihy. Um, who is the son of the actor who played Connell Cochran in Halloween three. So much to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's just, I, I wanted to mention that cause it's such a, there's just a lot in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think Val Kilmer is so great in this movie. Like he, yes, everything from his introduction onward is just like, I think part of it is, is part of what makes Kilmer so good is that he's genuinely an unsettling presence at times. Yeah. Like, you know, like we've seen him in leading man roles, but I think he's better in movies where he's allowed to be more unpredictable, like Tombstone, for example. Uh, and some of that erratic nature is on display here. Um, and there's one moment, I swear to God, when the baby looks at Mad Mardikin and gives him this look. And I'm no idea how they got the baby to make that face while the camera was rolling, but they did. And it's amazing. Yeah, you mentioned him being uh, feeling a, a little dangerous, which is good. It never, it, it is such a perfect balance though, because you never dislike Mad Mardigan. No. He does things, he does things that are dislikable, but it always feels rascally as opposed to dark hearted or mean spirited on his part. This is a guy who it's almost like you're getting taken by someone in the sting rather than, uh, you know, oh, uh, I'm going to turn you in, uh, uh, you know, for the some Liabe seeds or something. Liabe <laughs> <laughs> seeds are back. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this they, they, and I think they actually conceived of be- Man Morgan being a little worse. Uh, there's a scene where Bavmorda's soldiers find Willow and they haul in Mad Mardikin with the implication that he gave up their location. But there's a clearly 80-yard line yeah. where a soldier says, I told you we'd find them without your help. I'm like, they clearly originally wanted him to sell out the others, but then kind of pulled back on it a little bit. Yeah, a little. Although the implication, when they first came up, I just thought, because he's shirtless, I believe. Uh, oh, yeah. Through, impl- through a lot of this movie. Yeah, yeah. The implication for me was I thought, oh, they tortured him and he gave up Willow. But uh, then that ADR line came in. And uh, so I, e- even without that line, I at least was in the headspace that Mardigan didn't do it kind of out of self-servingness. It was more of a he'd kind of been forced. His hand had been forced. Um, another character that seems to be a sort of medieval fantasy version of a Star Wars character is General Kale. 
who's Queen Babmorda's war chieftain, uh, and played by stuntman and actor Pat Roach, who was the German mechanic who fought Indiana Jones near the flying wing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he definitely has a Darth Vader vibe going on. He's physically imposing, because Pat Roach was a big guy. His face is masked. He's got this very cool and intimidating skull mask. But I have a couple issues with General Kale, and I have to, I have to mention them. First, while he looks awesome, he lacks any of the sense of mystery or depth that Darth Vader has, even from the very beginning. He's just they give him this cool mask, and they have almost immediately have him take it off, and it's it's just a guy underneath. Like if you're gonna bother with the memorable mask, leave it on for a while. Make us wonder what what is what's under there. Um, also, Bab Morda kind of slaps him around a bit, and that that it robs him of the intimidation effect a little bit. Yeah, so that by the time you get to that kind of final fight where Mardigan is battling him, and you know, hacks off part of his uh, helmet face play and all of that it yeah. does it, it feels kind of a little beside the point especially anyhow there's a lot other going yeah. on at that point but uh he yeah i, I agree yeah but i have no doubt that mad martigan's yeah. going to be able to feed him because he's not he hasn't been made into this sort of like oh this is the guy you can't beat um i also want to mention that general kale is named after film critic pauline kale um, and later in the film, there's a two-headed dragon called an Ebersisk after, <laughs> after critics Siskel and Ebers. <laughs> um, I think the problem with Bab Morda as a villain, by the way, is that she's a little too reactive to be effective. One thing that's very effective about the Emperor in Return of the Jedi is that until his final moments, he doesn't seem surprised by anything. Uh, whereas Bab Morda feels surprised by everything. Yeah, it, it, including the betrayal of her daughter, where she, early on she says, well, oh, you know, uh, my daughter would never betray me, and, or words to that effect. And it's like, well, it, it, when you set up your big bad to be the, the character who exists to also, also be the character who exists to be wrong, it, it's a little bit of a problem. Her daughter is the more interesting character, I think. Uh, Sorsha, yeah, who is played by Joanne Wally, and I think, I think she's really good in this movie. I really liked her character in this movie. Uh, she's kind of the anti-Princess Leia. Yes, she, because she starts uh, on the dark side, you would say. Yeah. Uh, and she's part of that army. Um, I will say, for me, you know, when, when she meets Mad Mardigan, it's, they're on opposite sides of things. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of fun business between them. But just to kind of jump ahead, talking about Sorsha's arc and and her arc with uh specifically also with uh with Mad Mardigan. It's the one area where I feel this film is ahead of the curve in what they're yeah, what they want to do with the character of Sorsha, but it's behind the curve in that they needed to give her a few more scenes right. of progression rather than just having Mad Mardigan have a love spell. He spouts stuff, and now all of a sudden she's wondering about goodness. Um, it, it, if she's going to reject her mom, it felt like uh, you need her to see the error of some evilness that her mom has ordered. Yeah. Rather than yes. it just being, oh, this cute guy likes Hey, me. this guy is really hot, and I'm, I think I'm in love with him. Yeah. Not that, you know, that's not you know, plausible with Val Kilmer in this movie, yes. but it's, it, it feels like it needs a little bit more 
Uh, I mean, again, the, the the place where they're going, as you say, is very much ahead of the curve, but they don't quite get there. And it feels like it falls a little behind the curve with the way it actually is executed. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, you know, but and I will say in watching it, it doesn't detract from the enjoyment. Uh, it's just one of those things where you see where with a, a few changes, it, it, it probably could have been more impactful as far as you know her arc and where it goes yeah but having the 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 this this female character as this sort of initially villainous character who 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 turns again the impulse is very much uh you know ahead of the curve and it's it's uh yeah it's it's in it's one of the things that i one of my issues with the movie but i i doesn't in, impact the enjoyment of it. Oh, because at the end of the day they gave her a real story and a real character arc and i'm not gonna yes. fault them for not doing it exactly as i would have well wanted enough. them you know yeah uh you know some of this stuff is personal taste and uh i i fully get that but uh so i it's still really really cool uh willow i think has a structural similarity that is very similar to the lord of the rings in that there's a two-stage quest uh narrative uh in lord of the rings frodo is tasked with bringing the ring to rivendell and then it's there he gets the much bigger task of bringing it to be destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. In this film, Willow is first given the mission to bring Alora Dannon back to Daikini, whatever Daikini he could find. And it's not until he's captured by the brownies and meets the fairy queen that they worship that he's given the larger task of bringing the baby to the stronghold of Tyr Asli, where it's believed she will be safe. The fairy queen uh, immediately made me think of the blue fairy from Pinocchio, and and th- this is the scene where we have the the Tinkerbell esque character who flies up right up to Willow's face and kind of taps him on the nose, and it's very much it feels like inspired by those early Disney films. Uh, before they can go to Tirasli, they need to find the sorceress Finn Rizal, who has been exiled to an island in the middle of the lake, and upon reaching that island, they realize she's also been turned into a possum. And they have to return her to human form, which leads to a bunch of form changes before they're able to get there, which means, Rob, I think it's time we talk about morphing. Oh, yes. This is uh, some early, early versions of it. This is actually one of the earliest versions of it because the, the technology was developed by ILM for this project. And Kids out there, if you were around in the early 90s, I can't emphasize enough (laughs) what a big deal morphing was. Uh, Everything from Star Trek to Michael Jackson music videos, it was the age of morphing. Obviously, Terminator 2 maybe being the peak of it, but Willow ushered in the age of morphing. And it's, I can't emphasize enough the importance that morphing had in the early 1990s to film and pop culture in general. And what it's also just as a, from the historical perspective now, it's funny that they, there was a a very good reason for them to do it in this story. Yes. But they had to create this, uh, you know, computer tech, you know, computer technology to be able to, to do it. And then once you have that tool, and it's new and cool. Apparently, yeah. everyone needs to morph all the time in a lot of stories. And the then once you get away from that, they could still morph people, but you don't see right. morphing happening in stories left and right anymore because it shouldn't happen left and right in everything. 
it works in Willow a hundred percent. You needed it for the story, but it's just very funny that the, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail uh, again. Yeah, exactly. When uh, you know, and and it's also interesting that Willow coming is coming at the end of this '80s cycle of fantasy films. It's not the last one, but it's it's nearing the end, um, and. I, I think you get, and it's and the, the fact that this ushered in one of the biggest advancements in computer visual effects. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because in the '90s, the computer visual effects would take over to a much greater degree, uh, leaving behind sort of the handmade quality that that some of these films have that we we talked about before. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it feels like the, the the shadow of the end of an era is is being is kind of falling across this film yeah but everything so well executed i i can't stress enough willow still looks good even by oh think, yeah modern standards now you know the morphing you would you would do it probably have better textures now but the morphing in willow uh looks better to me than the cg cape and spawn for instance not to pick on spawn oh no again. question oh there's no question about it so it's interesting that the the earlier cgi in this looks better than like five six seven years from now a lot of the films because yeah. they're doing it they're, they're hiding the seams they're it's used sparingly but effectively and it's you know you you could show this movie now and my daughter wouldn't go ah that looks weird um you know. uh, the other thing that i actually think holds up incredibly well from this movie we haven't really we we, we touched on some of the other performances is warwick davis yes. in as the title character warwick davis is fantastic fantastic as willow it's perhaps not surprising in a movie named willow that this whole movie would fall apart without him absolutely he carries this movie in practically every scene and yeah and he does it he carries this and movie. he does it he's he is great he's he's terrific in this movie yeah and, and again those early that early stuff with Willow in his home and, and hometown is my favorite stuff. And it's because of him. Like you feel, you feel his wants, you feel his fears, Um, you know, him wanting to better his life also combined with the fear of wanting to protect his home and his, his uh, family and how those things drive him in different ways. Uh, And that, that push and pull kind of competes Uh, Willow, uh, to use the, uh, as you always say, the parlance of our times, uh, Willow at various points has imposter syndrome in this movie. Um, yeah. and it, like these these moments of real, real doubt that in so many other movies can often feel like, well, this is where we're supposed to have the character doubt themselves. And it, ju- and it feels like yeah. that here. It like you believe it. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's very you, affecting. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's one of those things that if they if they had not uh, had this actor, you know, who is a little person uh, to to play this, I mean, it's it's one of those things where you say, if you didn't have him already, how would you have cast this role? I mean, he's so he's outstanding, and I and and I I haven't seen the the uh, the the sequel series that is on Disney Plus yet. Uh, I will watch it at some point, but I I'm glad that Warwick Davis, if nothing else. Uh, he has championed kind of coming back to this role for you know decades now, and and I understand why because he's so good at it. It's it's such a a a, a 
a great leading role performance. Uh, and he's he's great. And while I, I, I too have not seen the, the new series yet, but I have seen stills. And all I can say is his hair looks amazing in this new one. <laughs> so I, I, I yeah, like the, yeah, the great, yeah, the gray wizard hair. Uh, I'm like, yes. I love the the change up there. Uh, very different from absolutely. How he is in this. Um, I, I, eventually, they reach Tyr Esleen, and uh, and the group, including Mad Mardigan and obviously Willow uh, and the Brownies, find that it's been cursed and overrun by trolls. And I think it's a terrific twist. I, I like that they they get to the place they're yeah. trying to get to and realize that it's not what they think it's going to be. And Bav Mordos' army arrives, and they have to defend the castle with only a handful of people, uh, which, of course, when you, do, when you can't have a CGI army the way you have in modern fantasy films, defending with a handful of people is a more cost-effective way than hiring you know, a cast of thousands. Uh, so what do they do, Rob? They home alone that shit. Oh, yeah, they do. They rig up all kinds of traps with crossbows and boiling oil and all these other stuff. And it's this great fight scene. You know, again, not having a giant battle where you can have armies of 10,000 on either side the way you would in, you know, the Lord of the Rings films or the the movies that would be subsequent to that. Uh, I think it's a great way to go. There is a weird moment, though. When one of the trolls is killed and he turns in this weird pile of tentacled goo, like oh. something out of the thing, I thought it was so different from everything else in this movie. It was super jarring. And I'm going to dive into this because I've written this down too. It's also not killed. Uh, Willow straight up magic murders this guy. He, Willow way <sighs> deadlier than anyone in star wars you know that's yeah and, and yes, that's a good point because he does his spell this is kind of the first spell that he's done that's somewhat successful if i'm not mistaken uh but it yeah. does go a little bit awry where the troll as you say devolves into this cronenbergian mass of just, yeah like it looks like yeah it is disturbing. It was upsetting. Like, and I'm not easily upset. And, and again, it's the sort of thing that if it was in the thing, I expected. Here, it just like totally took me by surprise. And then once it's there in the mass, what does Willow do, Chris? Kicks it off the bridge <laughs> into the moat. Just like, get out of here. I mean, Willow's pretty hard. I can't blame dude. him at that point. Yeah. It's, it, well, it was very upsetting. So I can't blame it. Just get it out of there. It's. <laughs> In the fight, General Kale is able to capture the baby, which sets up the final attack on Bab Morda's castle. And here, Willow and company join up with the remains of the army that we met earlier. Um, and uh, as the movie reaches its climax in the tower of Bab Morda's castle, where she's planning to murder Alora Dannon in a ritual that will cast her soul into oblivion. And I just thought it was a couple of things on this point. First of all, for a movie that is tonally rather light, Murdering a baby is kind of dark. I also think it's interesting that both Legend and Willow climax with the villain planning a ritual sacrifice. In in that movie, it's the it's the uh, the, the last unicorn. Here, it's it's a baby. Um, and also, my third point on this: the first thing Bavmorda does is she cuts off a lock of Alora's hair. At which point, my wife explained. That's why they've made that baby wear a wig the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's there's some dark stuff in here at the end, which again, if, from its fairy tale origins, uh, is appropriate. But it's just it's like, oh, it, you have that light touch throughout the movie, and then it's a very kind of 
sort of shocking turn in that third act. Yeah, Bav Morda, not, uh, not just going to kill a baby, if that's not dark enough for you, is also, uh, at this point, trying to murder her own daughter as well. Uh, yeah. Because her daughter, by this point, has switched sides. Um, this is another sequence where I think you see a bunch of influences. For me here, though, it does feel more organic as far as it feels like Willow. It doesn't feel like the influence. Um, right. So uh, the army comes with them. And there's this wonderful bit where uh, we get more morphing as well as more makeup effects where Bav Morda performs a spell on top of the castle, looking down at everyone and turns everyone yeah. into pigs. Now, um, yes. Willow, Willow has gone away to hide in a tent and say his protection spell so that he does not turn into a pig. Right. Uh, and then he then, uh, after the fact, is able to turn everyone back. This is his first, uh, this is the moment where he can finally do the transformation spell properly. Um, I think after he's, he's I think the, uh, you know, the, uh, the sorceress is back to, to human form now as well. Uh, Finn Rizal, yes. But, yeah. At that point, she has been turned back into a, 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 a her human form. But this then... Uh, this then leads to a couple different things. Once you have that army back and Willow and, and Mad Mardigan are, and, and Sorsha are going to help lead them uh, against uh, Morna. I think you get a little bit of a Seventh Samurai, Magnificent Seven yep. thing with the hiding of the army. Uh, you yep. know, tricking them uh, into not realizing that there are as many people. Uh, but, and that's a wonderful moment with willow for those out there who haven't watched the seven samurai or the magnificent seven it's done in both and they are both great it is also uh done to a very similar effect in three amigos yeah i i think the battle then you get finn rizal in human form gets up there and you have this battle between Bavmorda and her that feels like a precursor to the 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 sorcerer fight uh between saruman and gandalf in the fellowship of the ring which wouldn't come for more than a decade later um, and then this is where we get, we think we're going to get Chekhov's magic acorn because Willow has been given these magic acorns and you think that's going to be the thing that does it. And instead we get Chekhov's disappearing pig trick. Uh, and Bab Morda is defeated. And we get our sort of Star Wars-esque ending where we see all the characters cleaned up and celebrating. And Willow doesn't get a medal, but he gets a book of magic uh, mm -hmm. before returning to his village and family. Um, and it's a charming movie. I think while Legend has a slightly more challenging tone about it, Willow is a movie, again, as you say, that families can watch. Uh, and, and you know, if, if it's some younger people's first kind of exposure to sort of a realm of high fantasy uh, before going into movies like The Lord of the Rings that wouldn't, again, you, you kind of have high fantasy kind of is absent through most of the 90s. And then it's not until you get into Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings in the early aughts that it kind of comes back to life as a film genre. Uh, there's a couple of uh, movies in the 90s, but not as many as there were in the 80s or later. Uh, but this is a great introduction to, to that kind of movie for younger people. Absolutely. Um, I And it's just fun. It's a fun movie. Um, if, if you haven't seen it, and uh, I would just say go. Go watch it, man. Yeah, I think uh, one of the nice things about our bonus episodes, because we just kind of get a chance to pick and choose what we want to do, is all of the movies are ones that we like, you know, yes. whereas like in, in the regular series, you know, there's movies that we feel like, oh, we have to cover this because it's a significant 
um, you know, movie that follows in in a particular wave, and and it's like, oh well, yeah, but it's a tough one to get through. The bonus episodes. That's the great thing about them is they're all movies that I like. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that brings us to the end of this special bonus episode. In a way, I I think this is a great springboard into our next series. Get me another. Conan the Barbarian, in which we'll be exploring the movies that followed in the wake of that film, and principally belong to the fantasy subgenre known as sword and sorcery. How those films differentiate from high fantasy, such as the two films we discussed today, is definitely something we plan to explore, and we have a lot of interesting and fun films to cover, and some more exciting guests will be joining us for some of those episodes. That series will start three weeks from today on January 24th. Again, we thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. And if you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. We hope to see you again on January 24th as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. Legends can